Good morning, LifePoint Church. I am glad to be here and I am glad that you are here. We are uh, continuing our summer series. Uh, but before I start, my name is Mark Martin. I am on the faculty at UMBC. I am a professor in the chemical, biochemical, and environmental engineering department. I'm an elder here at LifePoint Church and I have the pleasure of being part of the teaching team. Uh, our summer series is uh, coined after the book, uh, Get Your Life Back by John Eldridge. And we've been using the book uh, as we've progressed through the series. We've been talking about different chapters every week. And so hopefully you've had a chance to hear some of those. Uh, today, I'd like to do something a little different. Uh, I'd like first to kind of rise up to the 30,000 foot level and take a broad view about how my perspective is, how all these different chapters, how all these different ideas fit together. And second, I'd like to talk about what I think is a very pragmatic, very practical exercise that John Eldridge suggests that we try. All right, but first, I want to start with what might seem like a crazy question. Crazy question. If you could say in one word what you want more of in life, what would that word be? Think to yourself, if you could say in one word what you want more of in life, what would that word be? Turn to the person next to you and tell them what your word is. So I do not know, I do not know what y'all are saying, uh, but, but there's been a survey. So in 2016, Kathy Caprino uh, from Forbes magazine asked that question in a survey and then wrote about the answers in an article called the top eight things people desperately desire but can't seem to attain. Can you imagine what the number one response was? The number one single word, anybody want to take a guess? Security. Security, time, financial security. It's Forbes magazine, yeah. So number two was money, which makes sense, Forbes magazine. Number one was the word happiness or other, other styles of that word happiness. And it kind of makes sense that people put number two Two is money, because maybe that's what a lot of people think, is that money will lead to happiness. I love what she wrote. She wrote, what's so intriguing about these responses is that the things we humans desperately long for today are not only universal and timeless, but also have become even more elusive and challenging to access and sustain. They become more elusive and challenging to access and sustain. In other words, it's more difficult today to be happy than it has been in the past. I, I did a bunch of Googling on this. Uh, there's a lot of surveys where they ask people, what do you want out of life? And oftentimes, happiness is the response that rises to the top as the number one answer. So let's define the word, okay? What are we really talking about here? I think there's a lot of definitions for happiness. I looked in... Webster's Dictionary, it says the act of being happy. That's not very helpful, right? So uh, I found another definition, which I really liked, on a website called Very Well Mind. Uh, happiness is an emotional state characterized by feelings of joy, satisfaction, contentment, and fulfillment. Let those words kind of permeate through your being. They just sound great. Those are the things I would like to have, right? While happiness has many different definitions, it's often described as involving positive emotions, and I love this part, life satisfaction. Life satisfaction. So is that something that 
you would like? I, I'd like that, right? Um, so it brings up an interesting question. Why is this so elusive? Or as Captain Caprino wrote in Forbes, why is it elusive and challenging to access and sustain? And uh, a number of people have wrote about this, and we could talk about this for an hour or two, but we'll just briefly delve into uh, what I find fascinating is behavioral science and psychology research. Uh, there's an author who wrote a book a while ago, this is from 1990, and I actually practiced pronouncing his name. It's Miha Csikszentmihalyi, okay? That's a long name. Well, don't applaud because I might not be saying it right, okay? So if you, if you know, let me know, all right? So in the introduction of his book called Flow, which is a classic, he wrote that 25 years before he began to write these lines, so in 1965, I made a discovery. He says that uh, people have been aware of this discovery since the dawn of time, so it's well known, but it had not been described or explained in the relevant branch of scholarship, which is psychology. And this is what he wrote. He wrote, what I discovered was that happiness is not something that happens, just happens. It's not the result of good fortune or random chance. It's not something that money can buy or power command. Happiness, in fact, is a condition that must be prepared for, cultivated, defended, defended privately by each person. I found another paper in the literature where they did studies with twins, which is an interesting way to test the genetic component of, of a behavior. And they found that, yeah, maybe 50% of your, of your happiness level is related to your genetics. They call that the set point. But the other 50%, a lot of people think it's all about circumstances. It's not. It's only about 10% related to your circumstances, your financial situation, your life circumstances, where you live, your age, your social environment, your relationships. The other 40% is based on activities or things you participate in. This is really astounding when you think about it. Half of your happiness has nothing to do with your genetics. It's all about how you think about things, how you behave. Happiness does not happen by accident. We all know that. Happiness is not a function of your circumstances. Money doesn't buy happiness. Everybody knows that, right? Happiness must be pursued. It must be pursued. So uh, Chick sent me, ah, he said this in 1965, he discovered this. So I chuckled when I found this quote by Benjamin Franklin. He said, the constitution only gives people the right to pursue happiness. If you want it, you have to catch it yourself. <laughs> so Benjamin Franklin apparently knew this 200 years before Chick sent me, ah, he discovered it. So this brings up two huge questions. Two enormous questions. What exactly do we need to do to pursue happiness? Like, how do you actually pursue it, right? It's not like a car you can chase after, right? If we pursue it, what can we actually do to catch it? And I love it when psychology and behavioral science uh, catches up with what the Bible taught 2,000 years ago. Uh, in fact, Jesus answered both of these questions 2,000 years ago in the Bible. Let's dig into this a little bit. So in John 7, uh, Jesus is at the Festival of Tabernacles. He's bantering back and forth with people. He's quiet at first, uh, but then he stands up in a prominent location. And it, it says in John 7, on the last and greatest day of the festival, people have been partying and drinking for, for seven days. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. And this must have been a little surprising because they had just been drinking for seven days. And so he stands up in this prominent location and says, if you're thirsty, they're like, we're not. Okay, but if you are, come to me and drink. And then he adds this provocative saying. He says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. 
not just a trickle, not just a flow, but a river of living water will flow from them. This was a theme. John, Jesus talked about this with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. He, he said, uh, can you get me a drink? And uh, she said, wow, why are you asking me for a drink? The Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along very well. He said, Jesus said, uh, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, he would, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he told it to one person there. He tells it to the entire festival. He announces it to humanity. I've come to provide rivers, not of spit, sorry about that, of living water, living water. So what is living water? Well, I think he clearly explained this a little bit later in John 10. He was talking to the Pharisees, and uh, he was going back and forth, and they did not understand he was saying. It's a parable of the good shepherd. He's talking about how the fact that the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, and they follow him. They're like, oh, we don't get it. And so he said, let me, let me explain it to you clearly here, okay? I'm the gate. If you go through me, you get eternal life. Down at the bottom uh, of that passage, uh, and this is from the message version, he's comparing himself to thieves, the people that have come before and robbers. He says, a thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy. I came so they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Jesus clearly explains why he came. He said, I came to provide rivers of living water. I came so the people could have real and eternal life. I love this. I love the message version. More and better life than they ever dreamed of. What is living water? It's eternal life, but it's so much more. It's so much more. It's more and better life. It's the definition of happiness. It's experiencing feelings of joy and satisfaction and contentment and fulfillment that involve positive emotions and life satisfaction. Jesus is talking about what the surveys talk about with happiness. That's why he came. Jesus said life is the point. Our church is named Life Point because life is the point. That's the point. That's why he came. So over 2,000 years ago, Jesus also revealed the secret, not just about how to pursue happiness, but the secret of how to catch it. At the Last Supper, Jesus was super clear in explaining things to his disciples. It was his last opportunity to connect and to explain his perspective on life. And in John 15, 5, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and my words, in, sorry, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So that word remain, that verb, is also translated abide, and it means to be connected. And it's a little ambiguous because it's using metaphor here. It says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Be in me, you'll bear much fruit. Down a little farther, uh, a little later in the Last Supper, he says in John 17, and he's praying now for his disciples. He says, the goal is for all of them meaning the believers in him, to become one heart and one mind, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so they might be one heart and one mind with us. Jesus is praying to God that the believers, his believers, the people that believe in him, so they might be one heart and one mind with us, with God and Jesus. Men and women, that is, is the answer to the question. That is the secret. The secret for how to drink the living water that Jesus talked about. The secret about how to experience more and better life than you ever dreamed of. It's to be of one mind and one heart 
with Jesus. Another word for this is the word union. I love the fact that Eldridge talks about this word union. I had not thought about union very much, but this is why Jesus came to earth, to connect us with God, to have union with God. And I love the emphasis that he places on this in his book. And I love this idea that Eldridge talks about three progressive words that go toward union. So the first word's faith, the second word is intimacy, and the third word is union. So faith is simply trust in someone else. Intimacy is being relationally and emotionally connected to that person. Union is a whole new level of intimacy. It's being one heart and one mind or intertwined with others. So, so maybe a couple examples here. So I have faith in, in many people. If I have to have surgery, I had surgery last summer, I had a surgeon and I had faith that the surgeon was going to do the surgery properly, that he was going to be able to take care of me. Did I have a relationship with a surgeon? No. Like I went to his office and he told me he was going to cut and do, and, and he cut and did, and it worked, okay? But I didn't have any intimacy. So faith and intimacy are not the same thing. Intimacy is involved with this idea of relationally and emotionally connected. So think about this. Let's say this is you and this is God. Put your hands up for a second and put them together. Go like this, okay? I would say that's close connectedness. That's intimacy, so what is union? Go like this now. Union is when you're entwined. Union is when, union is when you become one heart and one mind with God. That's the reason Jesus came to earth. Eldridge talks about this in the book. He says the following. It might surprise some readers to hear me say this, but we are after much more than faith. Even more than intimacy, we are after union, oneness, where our being and God's being are intertwined. The practices in this book are ultimately meant to help you cultivate union with God, an entwined life. That's what it's about. And that's really what the entire book is about. So I love to think of schematics. I love to think about relationships. Uh, and so I came up with this image here um, from my perspective, this is the premise of the book, is that Eldridge is describing uh, these practices. It's over the summer we've been talking about different things that we can do. Uh, he calls them unforced rhythms of grace. Things we can do that will help us work toward union with God because we play a role in this. God, of course, came to earth. He reaches out to us. But we have an important decision to make, important choices to make, important behaviors to do to participate to do that entwining, to work toward union. Eldridge called these practices unforthism of grace, but other authors have called them spiritual disciplines or training. They're common things that people have talked about for thousands of years that have to do with learning about how to grow together with Christ. I love Eldridge's new take on these practices, on these spiritual disciplines, and his focus on union. So the rest of our time, we're going to talk about one way that we can connect more deeply uh, and build union with God, and it's through the gifts of memory. So uh, to explain, uh, I want to start with the book of Joshua. So the Jews had just spent 40 years uh, wandering in the wilderness. And at the beginning of the book of Joshua, uh, Moses, who led them through the wilderness, has passed away and died. And the mantle of leadership has been passed to Joshua. 
So he is now in a, a predicament because they are at the river, at the Jordan River. They're about to cross over into the promised land. And uh, in Joshua 9, he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. And I think that the kids this past week have been focusing on that verse, right? And, and God gives Joshua some very specific instructions. He says, I'm going to build you up in the eyes of the people and in the eyes of the land. Uh, we're going to part the Jordan River. So what I want you to do, and he's very specific, take the Ark of the Covenant, where the Ten Commandments were held, and have the priest lift that Ark of the Covenant and have them walk up to the river. But have everybody else stand 3,000 feet behind them. Because you may remember other places in the Testament, if you touch it, you know, or something, you could die. So this is like a safety precaution. This is the safety zone. So the priests walk up to the river. He says, have the priests stand in the river. And, and as they do, what will happen is the river will stop flowing. The, the, the water will stop. And this is incredibly impressive because it was springtime. The river was at flood stage. And I did a little digging here. It was probably at that time about 100 feet wide and at least 10 feet deep. So you can imagine the flow of water coming down the river. The priests walked out, and so they gave the command, the priests walked out, they stood in the middle of this river, and the water stopped. So from the geography and the text, we can learn that the water was backed up about two miles. It literally formed a lake behind the Ark of the Covenant, which allowed the nation of Israel, so it says later there was 40,000 warriors. So there's 40,000 warriors. How many other people were with them? to cross the river. How long does that take? It takes a long time. This massive amount of water built up. After the people were safely crossed, God gave Joshua a new command. He said this, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe. Tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them with you over and put them down to the place where you stay tonight. God said, hey, this is important. While they're still out there, send 12 men, one from each of the 12 tribes, to go and grab a giant stone from the middle of the base of the Jordan River and bring it with them over to the shore. In Joshua 4, 20, 23, it says, and Joshua set up at Gilgal, he set up camp, the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. They made a pile of stones. So this is amazing. That's an actual photo of the pile of stones. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But he said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Why is there a pile of stones there, mom? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, so that you might always fear the Lord your God. God ensured that the people of Israel would remember this amazing miracle had happened by building this pile of 12 stones. In fact, remember, is one of the most often repeated commands in the Bible. It's said over and over again, remember, remember, remember. And, and oftentimes, the Israelites are building piles of stones. So why is that? Well, men and women, because there was no Instagram back then, right? So they couldn't take a picture of the Jordan River parting. They had to do something physically to remember. Why else did God encourage them to remember? Why is it so often repeated? Uh, and again, this is, this is an interesting finding, is that negative experiences are easier to remember than positive ones. 
This is a, a well-documented phenomena, and I can prove it to you right now. So if you were alive on September 11th, when the planes hit the towers, you probably remember vividly where you are, where you were that day, what you were doing that day, and all the events that surrounded the activity that you participated in on September 11th. Do you remember what happened two days earlier? Probably not, probably not. It's because, uh, and again, there's a whole psychology literature here. When we experience uh, negative emotions, they impact us in a profound way. God knew that we were just beginning, God knew, already knew what we were just beginning, what we're just beginning to understand. Uh, in an article about this, uh, the author writes, recent research implies that negative emotions like fear and sadness trigger increased activity in the part of the brain linked to memories. And these emotionally charged memories are preserved in greater detail than happy or more neutral ones. So God had the Israelites build the piles of stones to help them remember positive experiences that they had with him. Jesus, at the Last Supper, broke bread, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. We're commanded over and over again to remember the positive and the good things that God does because we're prone to forget, because they're not easy to remember. So we build in ways to do this. All right, so uh, we can put our gift of memory into practice today, uh, and we can help, which will help us build union with God. We've been talking all summer about the Pause app, and uh, to take a one-minute or two-minute pause uh, to focus on God, uh, Eldridge suggests uh, in the book that we use a physical object to help us remember something. In the book, he talks about a stone that he pulled from a river from one of his vacations. Uh, so on our 30th anniversary, my wife and I, Juliana, in 2018, uh, we took a trip to Hawaii. Uh, we went to Kauai. And uh, this is a picture that we took from a helicopter I've never been in a helicopter in my entire life, and so it was incredibly exhilarating. Uh, it was an amazing experience. And uh, you know, we got to the hotel, they put this on, so I don't have a stone from a river, but I have these, uh, I had to look up what they, they're kukui nuts in my, in my lay here. And so Eldridge suggests that you remember, you remember a positive experience that you had. To remember the sights, the sounds. This ties in with other aspects of the book where Eldridge talks about get outside and enjoy the beauty. The, the beauty in Hawaii was just amazing. It was overwhelming, in fact. The helicopter trip was exhilarating. The food was delicious. Incredible. I was with my wife, and we had a wonderful time hiking and, and uh, going on the beach. As you remember the details, uh, go to the next slide for me, of a place that you love or an experience that you have or a person that you know, remember the details Know this, know that God created the place and the experience. He's the creator of every good thing. He's the creator of everything that we love. And you know what? He did it for you. He did it for you. He didn't have to make these things beautiful, but he chose to. Know that he gave you the opportunity to experience that place or that thing. Know that he loves beauty and goodness, and he loves it when you experience his creation and his goodness. As you remember the experience or the place, as you know that he created that for you, finally express gratitude to him. Thank God for creating this, for the beauty that's involved. Thank him for allowing you to have the experience. Thank him for allowing you to interact with this thing that you love. That's it. 
So when you do the pause app, or when you take a pause, um, you can use memory as a mechanism to think about the goodness of God and the experiences that you've had. So I wanna try a little experiment here. So if you have a phone, take out your phone. I don't wanna take a lot of time on this, but grab your phone if you could. Go to the Photos app and go to the last oldest photo you can find. Okay, now take one minute here and try this. And now, it might not be a happy photo, okay? <laughs> but I want you to then scroll up or down, whichever way, direction is more recent, until you find a wonderful memory. Maybe it's a person whom you love. Maybe it's a place that you enjoyed. Maybe it was an experience like a birthday party or visiting with family or being together with friends. Okay, so I'm a professor. We give homework. This is your homework. I, I want you... I want you to practice what I preached. <laughs> I want you to put into practice this idea of pausing to remember. Use that photo in the next 24 hours to take a one or two minute pause. Look at the photo and use it to remember the experience or the person or the place where you were. Know that God created that person or that place or that experience for you to enjoy and that you love it and God loves you and that's why he did it. And then use that experience, that idea, that opportunity to express gratitude to God for, for that person, place, or thing that you experienced. God created you for union with him. Jesus came to earth for you to have union with God. But it requires that we engage him. It requires that we participate. It requires that we make decisions. He's the vine, we're the branches, we must remain in him. Those are choices that we make. And one way to do that is through the gift of memory. Think about or remember something that you love and thank God that he's provided it. And as we remember these things, we thank God that he created them and that brings us closer to him. That brings us closer to union. Let me pray. Dear God, thank you for the gift of memory. Thank you that you came to earth so that we could have union with you Thank you that we have some role in that and help us, guide us, direct us, lead us into deeper, more meaningful, more entwined connection with you. Help us to participate in practices like those described in the book that are gonna bring us into union with you. I pray for the people in the audience here and those watching online, Lord, that they would experience you at a deeper and more personal level every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.